This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Spawn, the common sense, generally fun and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture and the many issues impacting families today. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. I'm the co-founder of CoolMomPicks.com. Today, for our final episode of 2022, I thought we'd do something a little different. We're going to take a look back at some of our favorite episodes, guests, and quotes of the year. You know like how on Friends or Seinfeld, they used to do that for their annual Christmas episode, like the whole crew would sit around and reminisce, and then they'd cut to a clip, basically so the writers didn't have to write a whole new show. Well, kind of like that, only <laughs> not exactly like that, and I don't look like Jennifer Aniston. I think it'll be fun. It'll give you sort of an index of some of the great episodes to catch up on. If you missed them this year, you just hop into that Spawned library in your podcast app, scroll down, and you will find them. I'm excited to take this walk down 12 months of Spawned memory lane. (laughs) That's not a thing, but okay. Right after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Milio Photos. If you're like most parents, your photo organization can use a little help. If you're like me, it can use a lot of help because I have so many photos and videos on all different gadgets, computers, tablets, hard drives, cloud storage. It's a lot to keep up with. That's where Milio Photos comes in. It's a really easy service that helps families organize and preserve photos, videos, and all your digital files that matter. And Spawned listeners get to save 20% when you subscribe through Milio. That's M-Y-L-I-O dot com slash cool. In fact, we've already been getting thank you emails and DMs from listeners who have tried out Milio Photos and are loving it. And here's why. Milio Photos helps make it easier and smarter to handle that lifetime of digital memories that we all have by collecting all those files that matter to you, curating and organizing them, allowing you to share them privately, and also they help make sure that you can preserve them for your kids, grandkids, all the generations to come. Best of all, it doesn't matter what platform you use. Apple, Microsoft, Samsung, Google device, Milio Photos works with all of them. So why not get ahead of that photo organization for the new year and get Milio Photos right now? It's just $99 a year for an unlimited number of photos, videos, documents on all your devices. And as a Spawned listener, you'll save 20% when you subscribe through Milio, M-Y-L-I-O dot com slash cool. That's 20% savings right now at Milio dot com slash cool. So let's talk about 2022 for a sec. Looking back on all the episodes of Spawned, Kristen and I really spoke to a diverse and incredibly impressive group of guests. We interviewed so many interesting people from authors to organization experts, top TV news pundits, a movie director, and we thought we'd take a look back at some of the top moments that we loved from some of our favorite 2022 Spawned episodes. Not to play favorites, we loved all of them, but here are a few. So what's interesting is that when we started Spawned back in 2015, believe it or not, that was 279 episodes ago, our kids were pretty young. And as Spawned has grown up, so have our children. And so have a lot of your children. You've grown up with us. So we're pretty well entrenched in the teen years and all the fun and challenges that that can bring to parenting. A lot of terrific guests really helped us with that, starting back in January with Julie Lifecott-Hames. She reassured Kristen, and I'm sure many of you listened, that overall, we're doing 
a pretty okay job raising our children to be strong and confident adults. She is such a thoughtful, reassuring presence, and her book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, really offers plenty of useful tips and strategies that we can all learn from, even if you don't quite have teens yet. Here she is telling us the three things our children need before leaving home. The two things our kids need by way of skill when they leave our homes, I think. Actually, I I have three. I call it the arc of becoming a human. A-R-C, agency, resilience, character. You want to know what to focus on in your home? Stuff that builds agency. That includes chores. That includes responsibility. That includes backing away and saying, I know this is hard, but you do hard things. I believe in you. Let me know if you need help. And walking away. Mm -hmm. Resilience Mm -hmm. is they know they can cope when things go badly. They don't feel everything that goes wrong is detrimental to their future. They feel reassured like, yep, okay, you, you know, that didn't go as well as you'd hoped, but you know what? I'm here for you. I still love you. The sun will come up tomorrow. You building resilience, that ability to cope. And character is knowing that it's not all about them, that others' needs matter, that their needs don't always come first. And a family with four kids, they're learning that implicitly. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, ARC, agency, resilience, character. If we can build those things, doesn't matter what their career, their college, their trade, their profession, what have you, where they live, you know, they are going to be capable, competent, confident, kind people. Another favorite guest of mine who reassures us about the teen years is MSNBC pundit, pollster, and dad, John Delavolpe. We had a terrific conversation about his new book, Fight, how Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America. We discussed what we get wrong about Gen Z and why the data, and he is a data expert, gives us every reason to be hopeful about this generation. I argue that no generation in the last seven or eight decades has been confronted with more chaos more quickly than our kids. And just like, think about this for a second. Like, oldest ones were run around the time of 9-11, mid to late 90s. And these young people, they lost their innocence and their sense of security so early in their lives. Financially, millions of their parents lost their homes from the financial crisis. We're still dealing with the mental health repercussions of that, especially on younger men. They go to school and immediately they're faced with lockdown drills and school shootings. Again, it should make you feel more safe going to school, make them feel less safe and uneasy. Then we have like the whiplash in our politics between, quote, no drama Obama, right? And the reality show president and Trump. Opioids, global warming, just so much angst and turmoil, but rather than melting like these snowflakes. And this is before COVID. Then COVID happens. And I think what's happened is it's made them angry. It's made them determined. And I think it's made them motivated to not sit back and take this, but to stand up, to organize with their friends and other like-minded individuals in the communities and the country, potentially around the world, to change things. I think they're more determined than any generation I've seen again since perhaps the greatest. You know, we often talk about the things our own kids are going through right now. And this year, that includes college applications. I am deep in it right now. And so I was thrilled to get to chat with one of my favorite returning guests, Ned Johnson, who really talked me down and gave me advice that I have been putting to use myself. I love when our guests help me. (laughs) And hopefully they help you too. So here's Ned Johnson with tips on how and when to start finding the college that's right for your child. And when you go to look at colleges, it's worth going purposefully to places you think you will like and purposely places you think you won't like mm. to confirm, right? Because yeah. it's, it's so based on stereotypes. You go to big and go small and go urban and this and this and this and the other thing. My team who actually are college counselors have these little college visiting cars. And so it's all these different things about these programs and diversity. Da, 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 da. But on the back of it, there's a list that says pros and cons. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, knowing why you like a place and why you don't like a place, those are incredibly useful, right? You know, oh my gosh, it's way too preppy. Oh my gosh, I'm not preppy enough. I say to every kid, I say, to you, you're going to go someplace and be like, no. <laughs> and your mom or your dad will ask some really irritating question like, well, why don't you like it? Which sounds like a question, but you feels like an accusation with a question mark, right? But here's the deal. Trying to put your finger on why, Ew, no is so useful yeah. because when you take your interests academic and your grades and then three things you've liked and three things you don't like to an experienced college counselor, you go, I understand what you're looking for now. And they can rattle off the schools that are based on that. So start it early, but it should be when kids feel curious about this. If it's parent-driven, man, I, I long ago squawked ever doing test prep with ninth graders. I always had these mm-hmm. parents say, oh, come you know, we're just yeah. trying to start early. We want to make it low stress. And it was the worst because it gave them the message. Honestly, I'm so worried about you. But also it's not in the kid's zeitgeist. So why don't you just sit down and start talking about a 401k plan? <laughs> start college when kids are curious about college. And if you're getting close to that college process, I really hope you'll take a listen to episode 278. He is just such a reassuring presence, and I'm so grateful for him. So in episode 266, Kristen had a fascinating talk with Mara Kaufman, an executive function expert who gave our listeners a terrific primer on what executive functioning skills are and how our kids and how we parents may struggle with it. Here she is talking about why having a dedicated executive functioning coach could be helpful. Coaching does work. I'd say that most parents would agree it becomes very hard for them to act as the coach. Yes. Especially when their kids are teenagers who are very over feeling like a child and needing their parents' help. It can create a lot of conflict in the relationship. So bringing in an outside support or coach can be really instrumental in beginning to create some of those changes. Also, some kids are just in the mode of looking at their parents and being like, ugh, you don't understand. Like, you don't get it. You're too <laughs> right. Old, you know, right. You're beyond this point in life. And so bringing in a coach that is a little bit more relatable, that can serve as both a support and also really like a mentor can be really, really helpful. The other thing that I always tell parents it's important to recognize when beginning that process, though, is the coaching process is really two steps. The first step is teaching kids a new skill or a new strategy that they can use to overcome a common challenge, right? So that might be they're missing homework assignments. And so the solution is to adopt some sort of planner or planning-like tool that they can use to better manage those assignments and their after-school time. That's the skill that they need to learn. Mm -hmm. But then the challenge is turning that skill into a habit because nine times out of 10, kids recognize they need a planner, right? They heard it the entire time they were in elementary school. They probably had teachers saying it to them a lot in the early days of middle school. At that point, they didn't need it. So they never learned how to use it. And then they kind of blew it off as a tool that was important. Then it needs to be introduced and they need to really adopt using it with frequency. And that habit formation, I think, is the most challenging piece of the executive function skill building puzzle because the only way in which we build a habit is by doing something 
over and over and over and over again. And for most of us, it'll take at least 20 repetitions to turn something into a habit. And if a child struggles with ADHD, it's going to probably take more than 20 times. So those coaching sessions can be really impactful in changing those habits. It's just a question of kind of the length of time it takes for kids to really internalize those strategies and begin to apply them and generalize them outside of tutoring sessions. And of course, whatever age our kids are, keeping them safe online and off is a topic we cover in some way every year, especially as the internet changes and new social media networks and the problems that come with them crop up. This year, we were really grateful to finally interview our longtime friend, Rue Powell, who you may know from the popular Discovery Plus series To Catch a Predator, where she goes undercover as a child to entrap would-be predators online. It is an amazing interview with her. I really hope you'll take a listen. But if nothing else, listen to her here explaining to Kristen and me how it's best to react if your child does come to you to share something online that made them uncomfortable. How do parents make sure that they've established a communication line with their kids that if something like this happens to them, that they know that they can talk to their parents? And what do parents need to do so that we don't scare our kids away? We don't want them to not tell us. I think if you're the kind of parent that freaks the fuck out, it is going to be hard for your kid to come to you. Mm. You know, sometimes this happens to a kid. You know, I have these conversations with parents sometimes and they're like, what were you thinking? Why are you being so stupid? I'm taking away your phone. You're grounded. Or even I'm taking away your phone to protect you. But those measures are punitive to a kid. And so oftentimes a kid is already steeped in shame, Mm. already feels weird, already is hurting, doesn't know what to do, feels like they're in trouble. And and they believe that they're going to go to a parent and the parents and they go, I'm taking your phone, I'm locking it down, you're not going anywhere. That's just adding to the pain. As opposed to, I tell parents and caregivers that one thing that we can do is really tell our kids to trust their gut. Like there's this moment where they're like, oh, something feels weird or something feels maybe not okay. One, it's okay to trust that and then raise your hand and say, hey, something's weird here. But ultimately, I think fostering a relationship where you're kid feels safe enough to go to you when there's an issue is really, really important. I know this happened to me when I was 13. There was no way in hell I would have told any adult in my life. Absolutely not. But I try now to, one, not freak out when stuff happens with my kids, but also foster this relationship where we're communicating constantly Mm -hmm. about stuff that can happen online. Kind of like the sex talk. We don't have the sex talk just once. We have the tech talk. And we have it over and over. Right. Or like I'll probably reference puberty way too many times for their comfort. (laughs) Conversations are important. Like even if your kid's locked down, what happens when they go over to a friend's house? You know, I'll be like, okay, remember, like don't go out on Wagle because it's likely that you'll end up seeing like an arid penis. And they're like, whoa, whoa. Because it's true, you know, and if something happens, just come and tell me, we'll figure it out. I think that's difficult, especially in communities where their parents are a little bit more strict or a little bit more, I don't want to say punitive in nature, but you know, they draw a fire blind. It's difficult to say, okay, my kid did this thing that led to this. And now I have to not blame them or be punitive, but help them because actually what they dealt with was abuse. 
Another topic we've covered in a lot of ways over the past few years is COVID, of course. Lockdown, the impacts of the pandemic, because it's not quite over yet, is it? NPR's Anya Kamenetz just wrote what may be the definitive book on the impact of COVID on children's lives called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Anya and I had a great conversation just a few weeks back, and I asked her, based on her research, what she thought were some of the positives and negatives that we might see coming out of the pandemic. All of this is going to have generational impact yeah. on kids, on caregivers, on everybody, right? There's just going to be generational impact as with war or 9-11 or any other major events. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, like, from your research, from all the experts, from the kids you talk to, what do you think are generally some of the negatives that you think will happen over the long term? And what are some of the positives that we hope can come out of this? So, you know, I kind of think about, like, the horse moving through the python, right? Like, these impacts, <laughs> they will move in a wave and they will take time to digest. But we have seen a very large drop in college going. Mm also seen a drop. I saw recently uh, a survey that showed a 20 percentage point drop among Gen Zers in whether they're even considering four-year college. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just one survey, but it is a major issue where now it's interesting because maybe it's not four-year college, but maybe they'll be interested in two-year college or trade school certificate programs. And that's a transition that's kind of been a long time coming, but certainly it's a change. And the drop in test scores that you're seeing now, without a major, major effort, there is going to be some percentage of kids that will kind of stay below that line and they will either have trouble graduating high school, they'll have trouble going to college. So you have over generally this kind of depression in the workforce. You know, I, I want people who don't have kids to care about this because this is affecting the entire economy. So that's kind of some of the economic stuff and some of the how it intersects with educational stuff. Mm -hmm. The positives... Well, a negative that could turn into a positive, we have so much more awareness and so much more conversation around mental health and mental well-being. We do. That's a great point. And our teens are really showing us the way to say that it's okay to not be okay, that vulnerability is part of your strength, and that as long as we can meet them where they're at and give them the tools that they need for well-being, I think that that could be very positive because we could see a generation coming up that really takes social emotional well-being really seriously. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? On a personal level, I've always been a strong advocate for media literacy in kids, especially these days. There is so much misinformation, disinformation, dubious news sources out there. It's hard for parents to know how to process it all. It's hard for me, and I was a communication major. So it was a real treat for me to be joined by journalist and CNN pundit Dr. Seema Yasmin, author of What the Fact, Finding Truth and All the Noise. We discussed how to raise media-savvy kids, and she talked about how you can actually help them BS-proof their brains. I really encourage you to listen to episode 282. She is terrific. And here's just a little bit of Seema with her views on the importance of media literacy and critical thinking in today's media landscape. I'm really passionate about getting media literacy into schools. It is very much not about telling kids what to think. Yeah. It's opposite of that. It's saying, let's look at this new story. Let's look at this broadcast. What's the agenda here? What are you reading between the lines? I just think we'll really empower them if we give them these skills early on to separate fact from fiction. I am so glad you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to do was share just a brief excerpt from the intro of What the Fact, because I'm really fascinated that it's really not a political book, even though politics is such 
such a big part of this. It's like smart and it's witty. It's easy to understand. It's a fun read. But I was really intrigued by this. You wrote, this is not a book that will tell you what to think. You, after all, are a free thinker. This book is just here to show you how your beliefs, thoughts, ideas, actions, likes, dislikes, hobbies, favorite color, love of dogs, fear of bees, craving for Indian food, number one football team, interests, passions, and disgusts are influenced, molded, sculpted, bolstered, and strengthened by the hundreds of information sources that bombard you daily by the second. I thought that was so amazing because kids are so skeptical to begin with. Was that deliberate that you wanted to set this up as like, don't worry, this is a how to think, but not what to think book? Definitely. And I just want to say that was a very long sentence on purpose. Like, I love running out of sentences. <laughs> my favorite. I'm the queen. I'm going to be out of breath when you read that sentence. Like, whoa, it's a lot that we're bombarded with. And yeah, it's no coincidence. Very deliberate that the first two words in the book are, hey, free thinker. Because who among us wants to say, well, I'm not a free thinker. I believe what I'm told to believe and my beliefs are molded by everything around me. It's like, no, I'm informed and I read a lot. I decide for myself what I want to think. And it's okay to believe that. But let's also be honest that all of these things, our cravings, our favorite abilities, our beliefs about the world, they are formed by this information that we are deluged with. And I want us, therefore, to be like, well, let me be savvy about what I let in and let me be critical about it too. By the way, if you want to know a little bit more about Seema's background, Kate Winslet basically played her in the movie Contagion. So that will never happen to me. Now, moms, believe it or not, we have our own issues, too. And we've had some terrific guests to help us navigate some of those. The perfect guest to talk to us about mom issues is Jessica Gross, the New York Times parenting editor and author of the brand new book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unstability of Modern Motherhood. This past spring, we talked about so many of the issues moms are facing today. To help us answer the question, are moms okay right now? Here are just some of Jess's thoughts. What are the big issues right now that you think are impacting mothers? I mean, we know the pandemic and economics. We talk about it all the time. What else? Yeah. Well, so I mean, or does that really overshadow everything? No, I mean, I think we're coming out of that period slowly. I think the way that that continues to impact parents is sort of threefold. Number one, parents of under fives, the kids aren't vaccinated yet. They still have a lot of disruptions to childcare because the childcare industry is still super messed up. I mean, even more messed up than it was before the pandemic. So they are still affected in a sort of day-to-day way in a way that I think other parents might not be as much. Yeah. Um, Second way is the mental health crisis. A lot of kids have sort of lingering issues from the pandemic isolation. How big that crisis is, is a subject of much debate, but clearly it has created a higher level of anxiety and depression in some subset of kids. So a lot of parents are dealing with that and that's really hard and painful. So that's another way. And then the third way is I keep talking to parents who are like, oh, my life is pretty much back to normal, but I am wrecked. I think burnout might be too strong a word, but some of them describe it as burnout. There just was no recovery period. So it was like you had to do all the things for however long you had to do them. If you're a working parent, you had to do your job on top of your kids being underfoot and deal with all the additional stressors of the pandemic. And even as those are stripped away, you had never had a chance to recover because you're still momming and dadding every day, right? So I think that there's still sort of a lingering, whatever you want to call it, exhaustion, malaise, like 
everyone just needs a month off from their life, even more than they did before the pandemic. So I would say that those are sort of the three ways that pandemic is still, and obviously people are still getting sick. It's not gone away, but it's not how it was even a year ago. Of course, Kristen and I have always advocated for not losing yourself in parenting as a person. In other words, we are not just moms. So we also had a lot of terrific guests on Spawn to talk about taking care of ourselves and especially around issues of self-care, what it is, what it's not, and why it's important. So who better to talk about self-care with Kristen, the ultimate self-care expert, Kate Spencer of Forever 35. Well, they do spend a lot of time talking about their favorite beauty and skincare products because we are all for (laughs) beauty and skincare products. A lot of you responded that what Kate had to say in episode 273 about community as self-care was really valuable. What is self-care to you? So I have given this a lot of thought over the last four years of doing this podcast because I think initially... I was kind of like, oh, it's, you know, like making sure I floss, <laughs> which yes, yes. to me, self-care is really a large umbrella because it is flossing. It is taking care of ourselves in that way. It is letting yourself, you know, sit down on the couch on a really stressful day and read a good book for the whole day. But I also have really started to understand it in terms of caring for my mental health and the mental health of those around me. And one thing that has really kind of come up for me that I had never expected was the idea of self-care as community care, that the way we care for our communities as a reflection on how we care for ourselves. And I really think they go hand in hand. If you don't care about your community and the world around you, Mm. I think it's pointless to be doing self-care. They have to go hand in hand. So I think that can be in terms of our global community, our friend community, our neighbors. That has really been eye-opening for me. And I've been learning from others about that. This has been a conversation that's been had for years and I'm just kind of coming to it. It's been really interesting. So I, I think about it as a large umbrella term and it really can kind of shift based on the day we're having. For another perspective on self-care, I chatted with Rena Raphael this fall. She's a former Today Show producer and the author of the outstanding book, The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop and the False Promise of Self-Care. How's that for a title? She really blows the lid off the wellness and self-care industry to help us understand that the real issues that put stress on women and moms are not solved by bubble baths or having the right yoga pants. It is an enlightening book. It's a terrific interview. And here's a little from Rena. How you define wellness and the industry, like what it is and how you see it's evolved over the years. Yeah. Last I checked the headlines, self-care is now also Botox or real estate. I mean, it's literally (laughs) anything. (laughs) Self-care. Yeah, that was the headline I saw recently. The term self-care has become as ambiguous as the term wellness, right? There is no definition, partially because it's so individualistic, but the industry, because there are no real guidelines, anything can be this. They keep shoving more and more products and more activities underneath these umbrella terms. And that's kind of the issue. But yeah, the term self-care comes from real political and radical roots that were more about community and looking out for each other and how to help different groups who didn't have access to medical care and Mm -hmm. real health care. And it's since devolved into something that's just hyper-consumerist, hyper-individualistic, and everywhere from Sephora to your local Walgreens is selling you some product that's about self-care. And I think we're kind of at this point right now where a lot of women aren't really drinking the Kool-Aid as much anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. my chapter is called Why the Hell is the Advice Always Yoga? (laughs) Because, um, 
You're not stressed out because you don't prioritize bubble baths or a yoga class. That's actually rather patronizing. We're stressed because we don't have adequate time off. We don't have maternity benefits. We don't have adequate childcare. There are real issues in this country. And instead, we're being told to almost silence and pacify ourselves with a bunch of products. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that a lot of women, especially moms, don't have time for all these things. I mean, like, I have so many friends who say, gosh, I'd love to take a bubble bath every night like Gwyneth Paltrow recommends. (laughs) I don't have the time for it. Like, the problem is, is that it usually sets you up for self-blame because you think, oh, I'm so stressed. It's because I don't take care of myself enough. I, you know, I didn't prioritize meditation, all these things, when it's really not your fault. It's because of, you know, the way our economy is set up, the way work-life balance is in this country, our culture. There are so many issues, but we're basically told to ignore the root issues and instead just treat the symptoms, which is hilarious because that's one of the number one reasons a lot of women turn to the wellness industry is they say things like, oh, doctors don't care about the root issues. But then they do the same exact thing. They replicate the same exact model with wellness. Speaking of bubble bath not fixing everything, let's talk perimenopause. How is that for a segue? Just when a lot of our kids hit adolescence, we are going through our own massive hormonal changes, which have <laughs> fun times. One of our most popular episodes was with Dr. Makiva Williams. She's the vice chair of professional development and wellness at Washington University in St. Louis and a true advocate for women's health. Take a listen to this episode if you want to know what's happening to our bodies during this time, how to manage symptoms, and what to expect when you you're expecting menopause. (laughs) When I take my kids to the pediatrician for their annual visits, we leave with what we can expect our child to go through, grow through, develop over the next year. We call that anticipatory guidance. I would like to challenge my healthcare colleagues to provide anticipatory guidance for the 40-year-old woman who's coming in for her annual exam. I think we bridge this gap when we say, hey, in the next three to five years, your periods are going to begin to change. You may begin to experience hot flashes and night sweats. You may be getting headaches. Sleep may be disrupted. And oh, by the way, your vagina may feel a little less loose. Mm -hmm. It may feel dry. Mm -hmm. If you have those symptoms, I want you to come back to me. Yes. And if we provide that anticipatory guidance, we can get good evidence out to our patients to make sure they are getting the right kind of care, that they are being taught about effective therapies that will actually work and turn them away from trying to go alone and go to Dr. Google and other places Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of information out there. You know, it's one of the beautiful things about living in this era that we live, but we don't want to turn our patients to misinformation because we've missed this opportunity to educate them. Of course, perimenopause and menopause are not the only changes that hit us as our kids get older. A lot of moms suddenly wonder, what's next for me? What should I be doing with myself and my life? I talked with journalist Katherine Goldstein about her very helpful, very objective New York Times article on the rise of professional coaching and mentorship for women. I really like this discussion because she's not a life coach herself. She has nothing to sell. She's really quick to point out that some people are turning to coaches as substitutes for therapy, friendship, or community. So here I ask her how you know whether a life coach or career coach is right for you. Here's what she said. 
How do you know if you can benefit from a coach? Like what happens in a coaching session that you don't get from friends or reading articles online or something that's more self-taught or organic? I mean, I think people who are interested in this should explore those things first books or things online. But I think the idea of a coach is that they help you set goals and good coaches do a lot of active listening and sort of help you in self-inquiry about like what may be next. And as I found in the article's title implies, there are coaches who specialize in literally every topic. So it's not just like life coach and business coach. It's more granular. Oh my gosh. There are marketing coaches, there are success coaches, there are love coaches, there are relationship coaches, there are space decluttering coaches, anti-racism coaches. They're literally anything you can think of. There's a coach for that. So I think finding someone who's aligned with what your general goals are is helpful. But, you know, having something that's really specific you want to work on, a career transition, a new skill, taking a business to a new direction, those can often be something coaches can help with. But generally, you're working with coaches for some limited amount of time. It's not necessarily an open-ended thing. And hopefully there's some sort of stated goals and benchmarks. And a lot of coaches are kind of action-oriented. But I think a lot of people right now are dealing with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I definitely have dealt with mental health issues over the course of pandemic. I kind of feel like anyone with a conscience and like an awareness of what's going on in the world. A lot of come of self-awareness. Awareness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> probably has had some hard mental health moments over the last two years, but coaches are not trained mental health professionals. And it's really not a substitute for a licensed therapist. And I do worry that people who are suffering in other ways are sort of seeking coaching out as sort of pseudotherapy. And that could really be harmful. I wanted to end this look back at Sponge 2022 with a nod to our chat in episode 270 with Zibby Owens, a fellow podcaster and author of the wonderful parenting anthology, Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. As OG mom bloggers ourselves, Kristen and I know that storytelling is in part what connects us and has helped us get through so many of the ups and downs of parenting. But I also had to wonder whether we're doing something wrong as parents, since it seems that 17 years after Kristen and I started sharing our parenting stories online through blogs, we are still all struggling with making time for ourselves. In fact, a lot of our issues are still repeating. We're not making time for friends, for the people we love, for our communities. On this topic, Zibby was really the voice of reassurance. I don't think we're doing anything wrong. I think this is the nature of the beast, right? When all of a sudden your life is about taking care of other people, how do you then pull back a little bit and take care of you? Social media, yes. And, you know, I've been following you guys for a long time and I'm like so excited to be talking to you today because it has been like such a through line for me. So I know what you're saying, but I don't think anybody can plop in and fix it. I'm not sure it's fixable. I think it's something that we all just work on because you can't, if you're taking care of yourself too much, then like the poor kids are just going to be like a band. Right. So there's this happy medium. I think we're all just constantly calibrating. And as long as you know that you have a safety net, even if it's a collection of strangers, even if it's people you DM with on Instagram, and you don't even know them, but you know they had a bad day too. And so did you. And you can send like a little funny emoji or whatever. I think sometimes that is the glue that's needed to keep everything together. And social media has helped people connect who might not have found each other before. 
Well, I think that's a great place to end this look back at 2022. Thank you so much for joining me on this little journey as we go through some of our favorite episodes of the year. Hey, feel free to chat with us on Twitter as long as it's still there, on Facebook and the Spawned community or on Instagram and let us know your own favorite episodes or what kinds of topics and guests you'd love in 2023. You can also email us at info at coolmompics.com and we'll even get back to you. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, to our wonderful producer of this episode, Elisa Makarowitz. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners who make it worth doing this 289 times. And an extra thank you to those of you who are subscribers and who have left us a kind five-star review. It really means a lot to us. Thanks to all of you for listening to Spawn in 2022 and hopefully in 2023. This is Liz. Have a great day. Have a great week and have a peaceful and happy new year. Bye.